The Yanomama Indians of Venezuela and Brazil presently number 15,000 people living in some 150 villages that are scattered over a vast tropical forest. During the past 100 years, the Yanomama have expanded in all directions from the Sierra Parima, a chain of low-lying forested hills that forms the backbone of the tribal distribution. This expansion is still going on today, continuing a process of micro-political evolution. This evolution has led to linguistic, demographic, and organizational differences in the large blocks of villages that comprise the entire tribe. In the central and southwestern areas, villages are very large, warfare is intense, and social organization is more complex than in other regions. In the southwest, the Shamatari population block is typical. Their original villages grew to about 150 people and fissioned to produce two new villages that entered into wars with each other, moving further and further apart, penetrating new lands. These villages in turn grew, fissioned, and entered into wars among themselves and with their neighbors. Today there are about a dozen villages in the Shamatari cluster, all descended by fissioning and population growth from a single village. During the past eight years, I have spent a total of 36 months among the Yanomama collecting anthropological data that describe and explain this process of growth and fissioning. Much of that time was spent in the village of Mishimishima Buetere, one of the larger Shamatari villages, some 275 people in total. In 1968, against the advice of my friends in the village of Bishasitedi, I ascended the Mavaka River and contacted the Mishimishima Buitedi, who had never before seen foreigners. The Bishasitedi, mortal enemies of the Mishimishima Buitedi, were certain that they would kill me on the spot, or that Lahalas, fabulous water serpents, would rise up out of the river and devour me. I survived both these hazards, and returned to visit the Mishimishima Buitedi every year until 1972. first went to live with the Yanomama, they wanted to know my name. I told them that it was Shagnon, or Chagnon, but they couldn't pronounce it. It sounded to them like their name for a pesky bee, Shanki. 
And that is what they decided to call me. To the Yanomama, I am the man called B. <laughs> Visitors are supposed to recline with poise. <laughs> Nanokawa, one of the hosts, grows impatient with his own customs and excitedly tries to converse with me. He is a leader in his own village, which broke away from Mishimishimabuiteri recently. He has temporarily moved back into Mishimishimabuiteri at the insistence of his several brothers-in-law. He and the local headman are closely related in the male line and do not get along well. They are competitors for women and leadership. <laughs> I reciprocate the continuing goodwill of the people with goods and services. They have grown to trust me and to recognize the effectiveness of the medicines I always bring for them. They expect me to cure the perennial eye infections of the children and babies, and although their language has no words for thank you, they can express their appreciation in other ways, a smile, a click of the tongue, or a gift of food. Wadoshewa and his brothers are an important faction in the village. No gift is unencumbered. And as he presents me with a basket of smoked meat and peach palm fruit, he whispers. My possessions are more important to the Mishmishimabuiteri than my services, and we always exchange items. I do not really want the bows, arrows, spun cotton, and other things they offer me, but I cannot do my work without providing them with fish hooks, fish line, machetes, and knives. They would not accept me for very long unless I brought them these things. But if I gave them away freely, those who did not receive something would resent me and all would be reminded of my stinginess. Therefore, we trade with each other.
I have spent many delightful hours with Dedehewa, one of the most knowledgeable men I have known, and a true leader. He has told me about the details of village history, of ancient and current wars with other villages, and secrets of kinship and genealogy that bind the members of his village together. As he periodically reminded me, he possesses the truth. Dedehewa possesses the truth about the spirits and has tried to teach me his complex, rich, and sophisticated religion. To perform effectively as a religious leader, one must learn the behavior of all of the spirits, how they kill their enemies by destroying their souls with fire, and how mortals, in the form of Hekwara spirits, can kill other mortals by eating their souls, removing all trace of polluting body fat by licking their fingers clean. Shamans spend many hours attacking their enemies in distant villages. Since people, especially children, are dying regularly, this is proof that their spiritual aggression is effective. There is no antidote if the Mu'amu portion of one's soul is devoured by enemies. Polaroid photographs are very convenient in my census work. Primitive society is defined and organized in large part by kinship ties, marriage practices, and descent from common ancestors. Genealogical data are fundamental for building a coherent picture of village composition and fissioning. It is therefore necessary to know and understand the variations in kinship terminology, the system of classifying and referring to relatives. Then I can show how all the members of each village are related to each other, and I can construct a genealogical diagram of the entire village. This is her daughter and raiders from Iwi stole her daughter, and that's why she's crying. I'm to study village fissioning, it is important to also show how the members of one village are related to people in other villages. Only then is it possible to find out how different kinship groups stayed together or divided when earlier villages fissioned. It is also possible to discover the size of large lineages 
and their significance in the politics of each village. Some large lineages are distributed among all the villages that constitute a population block. Mishimishima Bueteri is comprised of several large lineal descent groups, the largest of which is the headman's group, Muawa's lineage. Nearly 85% of the residents of Mishimishima Bueteri belong to only four lineages. These have been bound to each other over several generations by reciprocal marriage exchanges. But these four lineages and others are also found in neighboring Shamatari villages. Village fissioning divides the lineal groups into local segments and redistributes them in new villages in varying proportions depending on past marriage ties. My informant's real name is Kashinama. And I had this girl whose photograph I took in Nikodobiteri listed under Amo Ama. But Kashinama is the mother. And Kashinama turns out to be Amanama, who is my informant. So it is her real daughter. The girl was, the daughter who was stolen was sired by a man who's now dead. Although I have known Amanama for four years, it was not clear to me until this interview that she was the same person as Kashinama, a name given to me by informants in other villages. And it's her daughter's husband who was killed last month by raiders from Mumale Buitere. Uh, the guy who killed the husband was from Mavaka, and he was married into Mumale Buitere. He was actually from Monotere. All genealogical information has to be checked and cross-checked with many informants from different villages in order to eliminate redundancies and errors. People often deceive me about names and relationships in order to avoid using the names of close kinsmen or, in some cases, to play a practical joke. Because of this, I had to throw away most of the genealogical data I collected during my first year of study. With detailed accounts of past wars and the history of each settlement, and with accurate genealogies that show how members of widely separated villages are related, a complete picture of village fissioning emerges. Village fissioning can be explained in terms of the marriage patterns, the social composition of particular villages, and the demographic features of the population. The way people are related to each other by kinship and marriage is also reflected in where they live in the village. Whole lineage segments, the adult males of the same lineal descent group, often occupy a single section of the village with their wives and children. Within the village, people avoid some kinsmen because of taboos, but may visit freely with others. The Yanomama villages in this region of the tribe are conspicuously larger than those in other areas, and there is more living space for each person. The immense clearing in the center of the village is used for dancing and as a playground for the children. When men have killed large game on the hunt, they strut across the clearing to exhibit their abilities. Mapping the village in great detail will enable me to show how living space varies from village to village 
within a population block and between villages of adjacent population blocks. It appears that where political alliances based on feasting are important in intervillage affairs, the villages themselves are larger to accommodate visitors who come to trade, dance, and feast. Thus, intervillage politics has an effect not only on the numerical size of the village, but on its physical size as well. One must have a detailed map of the area around a village in order to understand land use and agricultural practices. The Yanomama practice a kind of slash and burn horticulture known as pioneering cultivation. It is presently rare, but was much more widespread in the past. Land once used is never re-cleared and cultivated a second time. Many miles and thousands of fertile acres separate Yanomama villages. Still, old garden regions are an attraction since peach palm trees, which produce an important crop, continue to bear fruit long after the rest of the garden has been abandoned. Thus, new gardens are often found near old ones and people prefer to remain in one general area for a long time to exploit their peach palm crops. Point one before you put the next one at the camera a little bit before you paste it in. Mm -hmm. That's good. We have a convey to come up. Hey, where did he cut it? Shabano Kair. Shabano Kair. Hey, Mamma, he wake a shabo. Mamma, he wake a shabano. I know she had to walk. Okay, Shaki Bora is 40 degrees west of north from the Shabano, and it's the waterfalls that they named after me. We have Shoyare with Bora. Shoyare with Bora is west 50 degrees north from Mishimishimabuitere. Two factors determine Yanomama settlement pattern. Short micro-movements are in response to the demands of agriculture. A garden plot is abandoned after a few years and a new plot is cleared nearby, often just beyond the existing garden. On the other hand, the long migrations, macro-movements, are determined by military factors. Detailed maps based on field data 
reveal the political and ecological reasons for past village movements. Each garden is associated with particular prominent men who founded the village. I collect their names in order to cross-reference settlement pattern history with genealogies and data on village fissioning. People know where their children, siblings, and ancestors were born so that the recent settlement history of each village can be reconstructed by using birthplace, estimated ages of village residents, and the maps of abandoned garden sites. All of this information gradually builds up until a detailed picture of village fissioning emerges. D-E-D-E-H-E-I-W-A is my informant, and I'm going to collect the myth of the origin of fire in Iwariwa to compare to the Bishasateri and Kaloiteri versions that I collected earlier. This is tape number three, side one nineteen. It took two years to become fluent enough in Yanomama to penetrate the rich concepts of mythology and cosmology. By then, I knew enough about the various myths that I could ask knowledgeable men like Dedehewa to recite particular myths as completely as they could. By pretending to be ignorant of the myth, I could put informants at ease. They enthusiastically told me the complete truth, as they often expressed it, to show me that they knew more than the people in other villages. Their myths are rich in metaphor and cannot be understood by knowing only the vernacular language. People tell myths dramatically and add detail to the meaning with various body movements, tone of voice, and facial expressions. Reha was making a scaffold high in the tree when Naro snuck up and shot a charm at him. Reha shrieked as the charm passed through the skin of his throat. It did not kill him. Leha was near a fallen abia tree. Leha was chopping wood from the fallen tree. Naro blew a charm at him as he chopped. It struck Leha. It nicked his throat. When he struck the cord with his machete, it separated, and Sloth was flung violently through the air. He was flipped high and far away. Boom. 
As Sloth was sailing through the air, the mountain fell and crushed Naro. Even long after the birds had begun painting themselves with Naro's blood, Sloth was still flying through the air. At long last, Sloth hit the ground. He got to the top and found the magical vine. One end of it was tied to the mountain. The other end was fastened to the sky. Sloth was terrified. He was poised to strike the vine. But he was hesitant. He was in a crotch of the tree. The tree was bent over under tremendous strain. He chopped. Sloth was flung from the tree and sailed through the air. After recording each myth or variance, I spend hours and days with other informants who explain in detail the meaning of particular words, phrases, and gestures. Working privately with Lele Bawa, I learn about the hidden meanings and details that Kaumbawa left out. Many villages, like Mishimishima Buitere, are remote and have no contact with the outside world except through my sporadic visits and the rumors they hear from visiting Yanomama. Dedehewa and Muawa, as leaders in their villages, are concerned and alarmed by some of the changes that are taking place, especially the introduction of shotguns into some Yanomama villages.
Muawa cares about the strength and aggressiveness of his distant enemies who have obtained shotguns from the foreigners. He is a leader and he has to be aware of changes in military power. He is strong and valiant and one of the most effective leaders I have met in his culture or my own. When he looks at you and suggests something, he commands. He sizes people up and decides how far he can push them, displaying uncanny perception. In a constant game of brinksmanship, he subordinates others to his will. He knows when to be kind and when to be strong. I found it difficult to live in his village and yet resist his constant suggestions that I give him my shotgun. There are other expressions of leadership among the Yanomama. It was much easier to live with Dedehewa and to become intimate friends with him. His dealings with me were most often benevolent. I am sick and he tries to cure me as he would cure a member of his own family. When he is sick, I try to cure him with my medicines. Neither of us believes in the other's techniques or paraphernalia, but our efforts show mutual concern for each other's well-being. By indicating my willingness to be affected by his spirits and his curing, I learn a great deal more about his supernatural world than I might otherwise. The Yanomama appreciate my interest in their Hekura spirits and want to help me to learn the truth, to understand the secrets of the spirits and to become a Yanomama. Participant observation leads to an intimate understanding of another culture. It has been a great privilege to live with people like Dedehewa, who taught me much about being human. It is personally satisfying to know that the Yanomama think there is hope for me, that they can transform me into a human being in their terms. I received my greatest compliment from Lele Bawa when he told me that I was almost a human now, almost a real Yanomama. <laughs> Be, <laughs> 
For the moment, Dedehewa's culture will continue. His village will live with the constant pressures of old grievances and personal conflicts between important men. There will be tension between groups, each applying pressure on the others to pull the political alliances in one direction or another, or to resolve conflicts over women to the advantage of some. A few will be dissatisfied and leave, and the domestic crises will be relieved when the village becomes smaller. Other conflicts will be resolved within the village by resort to duels to pounding chests and fighting with clubs. Men will be insulted when their status is questioned, or as stronger groups within the village try to take women from them. They will challenge these adversaries and fight with them. They will remember their victories and brag of them and brood about their losses. As old grievances smolder and proliferate, the smallest insult can lead immediately to a serious conflict in which people can be badly injured or even killed. Chest pounding escalates to club fights, club fights to axe fights, and axe fights to shooting with arrows. This fight was sparked by a breach of etiquette, a failure to share food. But its roots lie deep in the history of earlier fights and in the conflicts growing out of complex marriage arrangements that bind family to family and lineage to lineage. People were injured in this fight, but none died. The general stress and tension in the village increased, and some people began to leave the group.
If people are killed in such fights, large segments of the village will be forced to move out and start their gardens elsewhere or take refuge with a friendly neighbor. People anticipate this and small groups begin clearing gardens elsewhere, knowing that sooner or later a fight will erupt. They can avoid this by moving out, by fissioning, before the level of tension becomes too high. The pressures that impinge on a village from the outside tend to keep it at its maximum size for a small village is vulnerable to the raids of determined men like these. They strike silently, usually at dawn, and kill. They also fear retaliation, and they know the capacity of all groups to fight back. They hesitate to attack large, powerful villages unless they have help from their allies. Yet even the mightiest are liable to attack and live constantly, if not nervously, in a condition of threat of attack. Here, a large, powerful village mobilizes as word spreads that raiders have been seen nearby. The Yanomama solve some of their warfare problems by making alliances with their neighbors. They first visit them to trade bows, arrows, dogs, and baskets. This lays the necessary foundation of trust and friendship on which more elaborate alliances are built, alliances that involve feasting between the members of two villages. These alliances help assure that neighbors will not attack each other without warning and that some neighbors will be friendly enough either to offer refuge in the time of need or to help raid enemies. Still, the political relationships between distant villages, even related villages, are unpredictable enough that allies do not and cannot trust each other. Honor is paramount in relations between men. It is important for men to be aggressive, brave, and self-assured. The reputation of each village is the sum of individual reputations, of how many white teddy, or fierce ones, the village has. Little boys learn early in their lives that aggressive skills are important. These are the skills that will make their village strong, that will foster white-teddy behavior in men. Men like Dedehewa are admired and respected. They perform daily before the entire village, before the children who watch and imitate them. Like children everywhere, they subscribe to the religious beliefs of their parents and elders. For them, it is even more intensive and real, for they are constantly being cured by shamans 
and are exposed daily to public expressions of the ritual and theology. They know at an early age the names and habits of the spirits. They practice shamanism at the age of four or five, and they will be ready to replace Dedehewa and the others by the time they are 20. Children do not go on raids when they are young, but they practice the two essential skills that a warrior must have, shooting accurately under stress and dodging arrows shot in return. It is a dangerous game, but they enjoy it.